The song is A Spirit. It has been the title track for Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK. And it is performed by our guest's nephew and godson, Donnie Fraunhofer, uh, donated a spirit to the show. And uh, Donnie's uncle is Bucky Gleason, who's joining us here. And Godfather. On Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, one of a longtime F of Tim Graham, and uh, here with Matthew Fairburn of the Athletic and Jonah Bronstein of uh, Bronstein Global Services. Um, Bucky, I've wanted to have you on for a bit. Uh, this has been one of those seasons for the Bills that uh, you, Jerry, me. Uh, there's a people out there that were holding a standard and pretty much saying, Hey, Bills fans, you deserve to have some fun. Yeah. And it's funny how much people would say, would you just stop it? You yeah, know, right. would, <laughs> can you just let us have fun with the little bits of morsels that we have uh, and just let us enjoy Ryan Fitzpatrick as some sort of football God. Uh, <laughs> but here they are. They're finally back uh, to where we had been writing about. Uh, we were, We've been wondering what what you'd have to say about these uh, this team in Western New York, but uh, first I want to just uh, clue everybody in on what you're up to. Yeah, well, first of all, I've been at Catholic Health for a couple of years now doing internal communications, wanted to do something completely different as I spiraled uh, out of the media. You know, it's funny, I've, I've had a lot of time to look back and reflect, even after leaving the news and uh, taking the buyout. And Tim, I just, I want to say it, I don't know if, I, I'm pretty sure that I told you to your face, but I'll say it here. Uh, I always respected the fact that you didn't take the buyout and that you left on your own and on your own terms. And, you know, I was able to leave on my own terms and take the buyout. I would like to have taken the buyout. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying, I did. let's not let people think that it was some <laughs> principled thing that I, I didn't want their money. I yeah, would love but, to have taken the buyout. It was, it was a lot easier when you had, when, when you had the buyout, right? Because I just wasn't allowed. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to take the buyout. Just, I also didn't take the buyout. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, it gave me time to, uh, to do different things, you know, like, you know, you guys are at, are at the athletic. It was something that I looked into. Um, I don't think that they were overly interested in me. And there was a part of me that was not overly interested in, in getting into, uh, back into print media or any kind of digital media after a while. So I wasn't quite sure what to do uh, after I left the news. I just knew that I had to get out and I wanted to try something new. And that's something that all of you guys have probably heard me say uh, numerous times in, in, in the five years before I left. Maybe I'll just go try and do something different, see if I'm good at something else. Uh, that's assuming that I was good at the first job. So uh, I remember you telling me back in, back when we were covering the Sabres during their back-to-back Eastern Conference final run, um, you know, about how the business was going. And we get in those conversations over a few beers and you, your stock answer was I'll go drive a cab. Yeah. Now you've done a little bit better than driving a cab. Um, but I you, driven a you cab were yet. thinking about getting out of yeah. newspapers, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I think you get to a certain point where, um, I mean, I didn't like the direction that the industry was going. So that was part of it. That was long before I didn't like the direction of the newspaper. It was really the industry itself, and um, that made me uncomfortable. And I also, you know, I don't know that I wanted to be 70 years old saying that this is what I was my entire life. I think, you know, I, when I was talking about, you know, going to drive a cab, by the way, I did sign up for Uber, but I never did it. Uh, 
you know, part of that was, you know, Jim Kelly and I had a million conversations before that. He used to always say, you know, one of these days, I just want to work on a golf course. It'd be great to just get on a tractor and go cut grass. In other words, not have to think about writing all the time because you guys know how difficult it is, right? You know, people in the profession, and, and you guys especially, are so good at it. You make it look easy. But we all know that it's a lot more difficult. And there's a grind that that goes with that. So, you know, I just didn't know that I wanted to do that. I didn't know that it meant that much to me, sports writing in particular. And I just thought that I was going to go and do something else. And I still might do other things yet. So, I don't know. We'll We'll see. Uh, I, I wondered when I left, was I going to miss it? You know, are you going to miss um, having that voice or having that outlet to express yourself and and have, you know, a way of, of doing things that maybe was um, helped shape the thinking in the town or beyond that, you know, just challenge people to think a little bit more differently about certain situations that they were looking at. So, but I really, surprisingly enough, I have not missed it. Um, hey, hey, Bucky, I think we lost your mic right there. Oh, I'm sorry. You get, got that? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't think I did anything. Um, yeah, I was wondering if I was going to miss it, and surprisingly enough, I really haven't. I mean, there have been little twinges here and there where, you know, I remember last year, uh, you know, the Patriots were in town. It might have been the first year the Patriots were, were in town, and I always went to the visitor locker room and, and dealt with Brady and the Patriots, and that was always fun for me. So as much as people hated Tom Brady, I didn't. I thought, still think he's a great player and he's great to deal with. So, um, you know, there were those Patriots games when they would come into town. But for the most part, I really didn't miss it. Now, this team here would would have been fun to cover. It would have been fun if you remember, Tim, and I'm sure you do, uh, because things were so mediocre, so much the same for so long. Um, People just thought that that's all you could do, right? But I remember back in the Sabres run that you mentioned earlier, you know, I was being called a homer of all things. You know, Bucky, you're such a homer. Well, look, the coverage is reflective of the team that I cover, you know. So when you recover mediocrity, that's kind of what you get sometimes. And it gets repetitive. And, you know, I didn't miss the BS and the repetitiveness of, of it all. But this team, it would have been cool to, to cover it. Um, I'm glad that I'm not doing it the way that you guys are. But it would have been nice to have shown that side. And I think I even in print at times said, hey, give me something else to write. You know, give me something positive to write. I'd be happy to do it. Uh, but really didn't have too many opportunities when I was covering the Bills. As you've watched this team evolve over the last couple of years since you've been out of the journalism business, what are some stories that you look at and say, oh, you know, that's that's something I would have loved to have written about. I know you say that you don't think about it too often, but there have to have been a couple of things here or there, a game no. or a play or a, or a player or a personality. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't think about it. It's that I don't miss it. I think about it all the time. So this kind of is going to lead me into something, and I'll, and I'll get to your question in a second. You know, I was a huge Bills fan growing up, you know, and Sabres fan before I got into journalism. Now we all know journalism steals that from you. So the question is, when you get out of it, do you get it back? Can, can that fandom be restored? And it can't, just so you know. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because you end up watching the games as if you were covering them. They're, you know, your, your emotional uh, ties, once those are severed, and for all of us, they were severed a long, long time ago. Well, I've been lucky, and maybe with you and your children, I know that you're really into yeah. their athletics. Same with mine, is that I've been lucky in that my son, Jack, is into two sports I never covered. His two sports of preference are basketball and baseball. 
So, and yes, we covered basketball when you talk about covering the big four, yeah. and the, but you never got into it as a beat and, you know, it doesn't make you a cynic or jade you or whatever, but yeah. So it allowed me to fall in love with baseball again, which I grew to really just, dis- it was disgusting because of the steroid era yeah. It allowed me to kind of fall back in love with baseball again. And then I can, I'm, I'm into basketball now, which I never was. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the fun of it all too. Right. When your kids start going through it, um, you know, but as far as this team is concerned, you know, the, the, let's the, the elephant in the room is of course, Josh Allen and, and where he was and where he is. And anybody that's watching this or, or listening to this, they can go back and look at about the first 20 games of Josh Allen's career and go back and look at the first 20 games of EJ Manuel's career. And they're going to find that EJ Manuel's numbers were actually better than Josh Allen's. And Josh Allen had hit a point where um, the game was going to slow down for him. And it never did for EJ Manuel, who was a freak athlete and about the same size, same, you know, arm strength, very agile uh, and athletic quarterback. Uh but the light never went on for EJ Manuel. The game was just, it was too fast for him. It seemed to me that he would look at the field and it was like, you know, when your TV would go out in the 1970s, uh, sorry, Jonah, uh, he's probably too young to remember that. You, you, we used to call them ant races, right? And it was just nothing but fuzz in front of you. And that's how I think that EJ Manuel saw the screen. Like I take an, I, you know, I'm, I'm colorblind. I take a colorblind test. It's just a big mass of nothing. And, uh, and that's what I think was happening with EJ Manuel. And Allen was at that point, and I was like, he's either going to cross this bridge or he's going to be out of the league. And he didn't cross the bridge. He jumped over the bridge. Then he blew up the bridge behind him and <laughs> just kept marching on. So that's been really impressive. And, you know, we were the questions back then, and you were writing it, I was writing it, others were writing it. You know, how do you improve accuracy, right? Well, one way is fundamentals, which I think that he's had some really good coaching. Jordan Palmer, I guess, is uh, – kind of the quarterback whisperer for him. But the bigger thing is, is that if you get an offensive line that actually is functional and you have receivers that are open, your passing percentage is going to go up and your confidence goes up. When your confidence goes up and the game slows down and all those things start to snap into place, then you start to see some of the success that he's had. That's been a cool thing to watch from a distance. And uh, that's one thing. Now, from the other thing that I, and I do think that this, some of this is missing is that, I don't know that they've had people, and, and when I say they, I mean the media in general, and it's no offense to you guys who weren't here, is to be able to put it in perspective of what it meant and how it felt in the late 80s and early 90s when, when the Bills were starting to make the surge that you're seeing now, and then what happened, and then because all of us are trying to like, I've tried to explain this to my kids who, you know, my oldest child is 24 years old. So this is all something new to him. An entire generation had passed without ever, like, you know, without ever really being able to embrace a winner. You know, the Sabres had their brief little run there, and that was great. He was a kid, but it's different now. And it sucks that the bars are closed because this place would be going bonkers. And I'd be, you know, I don't know that I'd be watching games at bars. It's not my thing, but I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that I'd be going to them. You, it took you uh, a lifetime at the Buffalo News until there was really a general manager of either team that was worthy of yeah. everyone's respect, I think. Well, I, I mean, Darcy Regeer was respectable. He was just a different yeah. bird. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, so here's Brandon Bean. 
you know, the Sabres still have their issues. And I'm going to ask you about Kevin Adams, a guy that we've, we've yeah. covered. Sure. And we know for, as a player uh, what you think's there. But here's Brandon Bean. Um, what – I guess how much do you miss the ability to cover a general manager that you could write glowing things about? Yeah. You know, he's, he's done a really good job of – and part of this started when I was there still. Um, where he was making bold decisions and getting rid of big contracts. Like, you know, they go and sign Marcel Darius, who was, to me, was just a complete clown. And I, I still remember sitting in front of his locker waiting for him and saying to this, like, throng of media that was also waiting for him, this is when I knew I had to get out, by the way, and you guys might have even been there that day. And I was like, here I am sitting in front of some overpaid 300-pound guy to talk to me about how much he pushes this guy and then they hand the ball to another guy to see if he can run it nine feet. Like, this is my life. You know what I mean? And I, I, I didn't mean to bring you guys down, but at the time, I think it was Adam Bedini. He was like, Jesus, please lay it off. You know, lay off of it. You're, you're talking, you're making me want to jump off a bridge or whatever. So I've had that effect on people. But, um, but Brandon B is a, you know, is a super smart, obviously a super smart guy with a, he, with a really strong backbone. And I think that that's what you need. You know, you compare, if you go back to Darcy Regeer, who I know that we had our, our conflicts, obviously, and I called him for, to be fired about 84 times. But it wasn't like I disliked the man. I liked the man. I just, it was time for him to go, in my opinion. And part of the reason I thought it was time to go is because he didn't, I didn't think that he had a stiff enough backbone to be able to stand up to ownership and make bold moves. He was just too afraid. He was, you know, he just wouldn't pull the trigger on, on certain moves that I thought needed to be made. And Brandon Bean, if he's going to err, it's going to be on the, he's going to err on the side of aggression. And I think that any sports writer, any sports person, any sports fan can certainly appreciate that. It's, it beats the hell out of uh, sitting back and doing nothing. So he's, he's a very good evaluator. He's got some good people around him and, and I, I, I give him a lot of credit uh, for making some of these moves. And, you know, I remember when he took Allen, he was like basically saying, Tim, I think he might have told you, you know, my career's on the line here. I'm putting my job on the line for this kid. And he was right. So he's not gonna have to worry about a job for you know for the rest of his life. Bucky, um, good to see you, first of all. Hey, man. Um, all right. um you know, you talking about Brandon Bean makes me want to ask you about Sean McDermott, because the one thing, and I've thought about this quite a few times the last few years, you were you bought in pretty early to Sean McDermott, um, which yeah. raised my antenna because uh, you'd seen so many of these guys come and go. Yep. So many of them fail, frankly. And I don't know, maybe it was only a few years into me covering the team. And already I was cynical about whether this guy would work out. What did you see then um, that, that gave you some of that early conviction that I remember you having? And, and what have you made of uh, just the way he's evolved the last few years? Well, uh, first of all, I remember the first uh, day of training camp when both those guys were there and McDermott was unleashing his a usual uh, spew of we're going to change the culture message here. And I went back to the dorm room or whatever that office we use, that makeshift office we used at St. John Fisher and carved him for it. So that was his first day was, was me saying, I'm tired of this. I don't want to hear it. Show me, show me. And uh, so I was shortly after that, that I actually, you know, started to get to know him. And when I look back on that, if you go back and listen to the news conference, 
I, I don't have any regrets writing that column. I mean, that was like Sean McDermott was coming in like, yeah, yeah, this is going to be new. We're going to change the culture here. We're going to get this right. What he didn't know that was that he was the seventh coach, you know, in my time covering the bills or whatever it was to say the, the same thing. So I think what changed was that I, I, I got to know him a little bit. I spent some time in his office and maybe you guys didn't know about, and uh, I got to know him a little bit and I started to understand what made him tick. And I thought that um, he was without ego. I think that was part of it that he really was in it for the right reasons. I thought that he was a teacher first. I thought that he had a life outside of football that mattered to him, which I think is important. And I think that after he chose Brandon Bean, let's remember uh, how that went down, that there could be, that there would be good communication there and that the coach wasn't going to be threatened by the general manager. The general manager wasn't going to be threatened by the coach. And that was going to be a winning tandem if, you know, because there was so much of it was built on trust. Now we laughed at Sean and it's still funny when you talk, he talked about the process, you got to trust the process. And, you know, the cynical sports writers, we don't have to believe in that, but his players do. And I think that his players did. And I, I thought maybe if they could get the quarterback right and the general manager could make some good decisions, then Sean would grow into a pretty good coach. So it's, it's not to say that he didn't make mistakes. I mean, his game management, his first year, maybe more, uh, was not the best. I didn't like the way that he challenged. I didn't, you know, I didn't like the way that he used his timeouts at times, but that's the nature of being an NFL head coach and another person being in the media. So he's, he has, he has done a good job. And it's also not to say, and you guys know this, although maybe some other media outlets don't know it or certainly don't practice it. It's still okay to question him or him or them. Uh, even though they had a great record and this is a great run, you know, let's put the pom-poms down a little bit and, you know, still ask questions that need to be asked. And I know you guys are doing that. Well, that leads me to something else I wanted to ask you, which is how, and I don't know, I don't, not sure how you've consumed uh, media even since you've uh, taken a step back, but what have you observed from that end about how the team is covered? And I don't know if, I don't, I don't want to pump your tires for you here, but what might be missing with guys like you and Sully not in there? I mean, there's really not that columnist voice in town and, and what you've observed about the ecosystem, I guess. Yeah, you know, I'm really pretty, and I'm not taking a politically correct stance here. I really did, I have removed myself from it. Um, no offense to the athletic, but I don't have a subscription to it. Um, I, I son have, of I, a bitch. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> You can cut me off, fire me, rip me, go ahead. Uh, and it, it has nothing to do with any of, with anybody's work. It's it's really a matter of how much time I'm going to dedicate to reading anything. And uh, and I really have not read a lot of sports coverage anywhere. You know, I'll I'll you know I had to, I had the same conversation. You guys know that I love him, Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post. We've been friends for 30 years. He's one of the top columnists in the country. And, uh, and I had to break the news to him not too long ago. I was like, dude, I haven't read anything that you've written in months. So, uh, although I did read something the other day. So, you know. How does that feel? I, I have, I have a really hard time. Like, so there have been times where, where I've picked up the newspaper and I think that I, I almost have maybe too much knowledge of what's happening there where I'll read a couple of sentences and say, I know where this is going. I know who's doing the writing. I know what it's going to say. And, and then I had to come to the reality that people probably felt that way about me, which is pretty, 
pretty humbling after a while when you get predictable. And, uh, you know, when the results are predictable, the coverage gets predictable. And I was probably guilty of that as, as, as anybody else. And, um, so I haven't, I have not read nearly as much as you probably think. And part of it is, it, you know, if I read beyond that, I start to get disgusted in certain ways, quite frankly. I mean, I'll, I'll get you off the hook, but maybe there's, um, maybe there's a, a journalism discussion to be had here. How do you, how would you have done it differently knowing that the teams just were terrible on both, on, on both every, every way you went, whether, unless you just wanted to dedicate yourself to writing about UB basketball, there was nothing but bad sports to, to write about. Yeah. You could have found a, a personality here or a story, but in well, terms we did. of, we did find those things, you know what I mean? And we, right. they just didn't get noticed. Yeah. And I think that people remember a lot more the negativity than they do the positivity. I, you know, I remember, uh, uh, you know, there are times in the bills, whatever, they'd be around eight and eight and somebody would say, how come you're always so, so negative? And I'd say, well, they, they were eight and eight. So I would say that I was negative probably about half the time <laughs> and I was positive probably about half the time. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think that I would go back. I don't, it's not like I go back and say, uh, you should have, your approach should have been different. I, sometimes I, no, but I, you said that you were maybe got predictable. How could you have, how, well, how, yeah, how could I, how could any of us change it up to make sure? I, I, I don't think that you can, because yeah. you know, this is, this, what happened with me, the dilemma with me was when people would say, you know, you, you've become repetitive. I would say, I agree. And the results haven't changed, you know, Sometimes the faces change, but my opinions haven't changed. You know what I mean? And until my opinions change, then you're, you're probably not going to see much of a difference in the way I think, right? I mean, this is, you know, and, and I think what's different about this team here, the Bills, this, and, and you could see it coming, was that the culture did change. Um, I, you know, look at these guys and the way that they carry themselves. You know, you guys have covered sports long enough, and, and some people disregard chemistry, and I don't. I think chemistry is important. And it can, it can go away as fast as it comes. But when I see this team from a distance, it looks like they have everything that's like just right. You know what I mean? It's like money hasn't gotten in the way yet. It's going to, by the way. And, and this window is going to close. Uh, but the way that I see it now, it's, everything is just right. And it reminds me a lot, Tim, of that 05, 06 Sabres team where there were just a bunch of young kids having a blast playing hockey and nobody seemed to know or care how much money anybody made. It wasn't about winning MVPs. It was just about going out and playing. And when you have that kind of youthful exuberance and innocence and there's no fear there, um, you're just out there playing. That's what makes you a dangerous team. And I knew the Sabres, by the way, I was trying to convince people like, hey, look out for this team. This team's this team's really good. That was like maybe in November of that year, and people are like, "Come on, you know they're not that good." And no, uh, they are, you know, and because you, you get a feel for it when you're when you're in that locker room or you're in that environment, you just do. And I, it seems to me that this this Bills team has a lot going on. They they need to take advantage of this while they can because you know the window closes quickly, as we all know. Hey, Bucky, you you referenced it before, but I was wondering if you could get maybe a little more of your referencing the 80, the late eighties, early nineties bills, how this team compares. When we had Daryl Taylor on last week, I asked him if there was really any difference between those late eighties teams that came a step short of the Super Bowl and the nineties teams that reached the Super Bowl. He said there wasn't. 
I think, remember, I am old enough to remember a little bit of that. There seemed to be a difference. A team hit another level. Is this team similar to either of those eras? Or do you agree with Daryl Taylor that there really is no difference between those types of teams? I'm not sure that I understand the question. If, if you're talking yeah. about, you know, what happened in the late 80s that turned into the 90s? Or well, are you comparing that to You know the- what? I'm just kind of interested in what you, you, you mentioned before, like the signs. What's the same? What's different between those eras? Well, what it's the difference. One of the differences for me is my view. Um, my view of, of in, in 1990 was uh, I was a fan who has just got, you know, an internship at the news and hadn't had this sucked out of me. So I wasn't looking at it in an analytical way or an objective way. I was looking at it still, I think, in a fan way. And I was taking bowling scores at the news. I wasn't covering the bills. So, um, and even as an intern, you still haven't had that sucked out of you because I wasn't covering the bills. I was just writing, you know, high school gymnastics, girls' gymnastics stories. So my, my view of it has changed. I, I think what happened with them was there was a couple things. One, there was a young, exciting, upcoming team that was trying to find itself, and they had to get through problems, internal problems, in order to get over the hump, namely the bickering bills, if you remember. There were some egos involved, I think, on that team that were much larger than what you see on this team. Um, you know, Jim Kelly's ego was through the roof. And it was only, you know, it was only uh, slightly smaller than that of Bruce Smith. So, you know, and Thurman Thomas, those guys were proud guys, but they had egos. And I think that those things got in the way. And he, and even then, you know, when Jim first joined that team, he was the highest paid quarterback in the, I think he's the highest paid player in the history of the NFL. So uh, before he played it down in the NFL, that's, that's different than what you see today. Uh, the one thing that that changed was that they I, I do think that there's something to be said for having some playoff experience and learning how to win, learning what it takes to win. And those guys understood it, which is why they were able to repeat it. But on the way up, um, and really to me, you know, it was their best chance was the first one. It wasn't any of the ones that that followed, although the, the second Dallas game, I guess you could you could probably make an argument for. But the first one, obviously, they, they lose in the last second. I'm not, you know, breaking new ground here. But I think that there's something to be said for that. They were all in it, I think, still for the right reasons. And I don't know if they got away from that or not. I started covering them, by the way, in 95, full-time for, for AP. So that was the gap. You know, that was the gap for me. And this team seems like um, – it seems more genuine to me, I guess, is probably the better way to put it. It seems like – and maybe it's because there's no distractions. Maybe it's because Sean has or, – or, or some of the leadership on that team has – been able to get these guys to kind of, you know, keep everything in without any of the distractions, whether it's media or fans going nuts. I mean, of all the years for this to happen, it's in a year where there's no fans in the building. It's it's hard to get carried away. And I think they've bars. done a good job of keeping their feet on the ground. They can't make a stop at the big tree in the way the uh, the guys did in the uh, old days either. You know what? And that's another thing too. And I I'll even speak to that because you know. Back then, a lot of a lot of that chemistry, a lot of those strong friendships were were at the big tree after games, or they're at Jim Kelly's house after games. And uh, long before I started to cover the team, I was at both. <laughs> uh, my cousin and roommate at the time, he he says since passed away uh, of cancer, he became a Buffalo cop. He was a bartender at Jim Kelly's house for those post game parties. 
he was also my roommate. So that was kind of like my in to those parties. And uh, we had a family connection to, to, uh, to Frank Reich, although Frank wasn't at the game, Jim knew the bro- my one brother-in-law. So that was when I was a kid. You know, that was the, imagine that being 21, 22, 23 years old and having this be your team and the place is going nuts and you're at basically the, the biggest and best parties in town. Right. So I wasn't there every week, but I was there probably maybe four or five times. So in the big tree, you know, we all went there after games and there were things that happened during the game. Then there was the post-game locker room. Then there was the big tree where the, the, the tone changed at the big tree. And so did, uh, so did some of the, uh, I guess, I guess they didn't hold back as much at the big tree. You'd found out a little bit more of the truth at the big tree than you did in the locker room because there weren't cameras around. Now you go to the big tree and somebody takes a sip of beer and it's on YouTube in like three minutes. So those guys, it's a shame that they can't afford to, to, to go out and, and have the kind of fun that, you know, those early nineties teams did. So when people have asked like, Hey, did you ever think about writing about what was going on there? You know, what was going on at Kelly's house? I don't know. I was at the bar talking to my cousin. <laughs> so there wasn't a, wasn't a whole lot that I was, I mean, you guys know what I was doing. So, and I would never say anything anyway. That's somebody's private residence. What for you, what has been um, the most, rewarding or unexpected part of what you do now or being out of it? Um, Because I'm sure there was some, I can only imagine, like when you step out of something you've done for so long, there's all sorts of anxieties and stuff that come along with that. But what have been uh, the rewarding or or surprising parts about about making that move? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because there was anxiety and I I like to view myself as somebody that doesn't really stress out much, but I was stressing then. Because I wasn't sure. I had four kids, and I had kids in college, and you know, I wasn't just jumping off the bridge into uh, into water, wondering how deep the water was. You know, I was jumping off a bridge, hoping there was water. You know what I mean? <laughs> wasn't sure if there was water underneath or not. It could have smashed into a bunch of rocks, and you know, went kapui. Uh, but it, it it has been cool at Catholic Health. You know where I am now. It, it really is about the mission, and as you guys know, um, it's been a challenging challenging year because of COVID and, you know, we have the St. Uh, Joseph campus, which is a COVID center. And uh, just to know that you work, I mean, it's not like, Hey, I'm in the ICU working alongside them, clapping my hands. Right. But you admire the people that you work with and the people that you work for. And uh, I think that's important. <clears throat> so what they do on a daily basis is, is amazing. Really. I mean, you know, I, la- I laugh about it all the time. I'm like, it's a joke with Sully be sitting next to me and be like, come on, Sully, we're not, this isn't, you know, we're not performing brain surgery. We're not trying to find the cure to cancer. It's a football game. Well, I actually work with people that perform brain surgery and, you know, are trying to find the cure to cancer and more. So it's pretty cool just to, you know, to, if you look at Catholic health and you look at all the employees and I'm one of them and so are all these, these nurses that are, that are really amazing people. So that's been uh, cool. It's, been, it's a conversation I've had with Jonah and Matt over beers. Uh, I'm sure we've probably touched on it, uh, but I know that I've gotten to it in depth with uh, with these guys, Bucky, is that as much as you people in journalism think of it as a vocation and this very important aspect, I mean, the fact that 
me as a sports writer, especially the older I get, um, I, I'm, I feel like I'm not really doing much <laughs> with, uh, it, it, with the world. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm providing for my family and all that stuff. I mean, I'm not taking that for granted, but especially with what's been going on in the world, whether it's politics, whether it's the pandemic, um, social unrest, um, all these different things. Uh, and then I sit down to write a story about, um, you know, oh, Christian Wade's not going to be able to play, you know, he's not going to have a, a preseason this year. Yeah. You know, it doesn't resonate. So I'm guessing that there is a, a very rewarding aspect. Have you found that like journal from that aspect, you don't miss journalism? Like it really, I was just, I was writing about, like you say, Marcel Darius. Yeah. You know, I, I know where you're going with it. And I, I don't miss the BS of journalism. I think is probably the best way to put it. You know, if it was just about people and you know, Tim, you know, you're, you're the best takeout guy I've ever seen. So you know, when you're when you're doing those things, thanks for lying on my show. When, when you're doing when you're doing those things, I mean, those things matter. And the one thing that I've come to appreciate, I think, as much as anything else, is that you know there is a diversion there, and people need that diversion. It's like you know how important is what Tom Hanks doing in Hollywood, uh, you know, to to the American people when there are people you know dying of COVID and and there there are nurses fighting for them in ICU. It's very important because it allows them to get away from, from what they do. And I, I think that there's a service there now, you know, on a personal sense, I, and I think everybody here that's, that's on the show is the same way is that we had sports that we have and always did have sports in perspective. You know, we're the ones who actually had it in perspective. We know what the real world importance of it is. And, and I think our, default is to try to act like it's not important but i but you know sports aren't life and death but they are life you've heard you've written that i've written that only about four thousand times and that's because they are and i think that it's needed i i you know i wish the stadium was full right now um i understand why it's not but i wouldn't i you're not going to hear me like diminish what what other people are doing to me Personally, I had, and this is this is a long way to saying I think I had burned out. But you're in a line of work now that is. I'm guessing the trade-off is is a lot easier because of the line of work that you're in. In like yeah. you, I like mean, you I'm saying, you're you're able to work with people who are really making a huge difference yeah. in life and death. Yeah, and it's hugely rewarding, and they're without egos. You know, we don't. Nobody knows their names. Everybody should. So, you know, it's funny. You, you, you do wind up with as a sports writer because your name's out there. You, you know, there were TV shows, radio shows. I mean, I've been there. Tim, you're there. Everybody's, you know, we all know the drill. So it's a very public job. And, you know, and it's analyzed and sliced and diced left and right uh, by a mass audience. So people are, you know, you have name familiarity and, and I think there's probably something cool about that. And there's probably times where it's not so cool. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, there are nurses over at, at St. Joe's and Mercy and, and Kenmore Mercy. And, you know, let's not leave them out. <laughs> Sisters Hospital and Mount St. Mary's that are doing killer work. I and mean, they're doing great work. What are your thoughts on the Sabres uh, before we let you go? I kept you a lot longer than I, I thought. Uh, we you know what? It's really been, this has kind of been therapeutic for me. So it's been cool. So don't worry about it. Um, Good. 
Yeah, it's been your thoughts on the Sabres and changes yet again at at, uh, general manager. And we know Kevin Adams. um, Yeah, but he's inexperienced. Uh, I guess what what would you be writing about, or what would you have written about the Sabres firing Jason Bottrell and going with Kevin Adams? Probably, you know, two different columns. This is going to surprise you. Um, uh, This is going to surprise you. I would have been for all for the hire of Kevin Adams. And I, it was, I was laughing like sometimes out loud because people were going nuts because they bring in Kevin Adams and he has absolutely no experience whatsoever in, in all these things. And I've been a huge Kevin Adams fan. We had a good relationship when he was a player. I played this golf tournament. He's one of the very few guys that I would probably consider would have considered a friend. Uh, you know, he never played for the Sabres. And then our relationship actually severed when uh, he started working for the Sabres. And we couldn't be friends anymore, really. I mean, we had a brief chat about it and said, you know, you got to do your job and I got to do mine. And we really didn't talk much after that. But I I, I do hold him in high regard. Um, he's a really smart guy. And I like fourth liners when they become uh, coaches and and general managers if, if they're fortunate enough to do that because they've had to work and understand the game on a different level than somebody that was naturally gifted. Like I never thought Wayne Gretzky was that much of a coach because the same reasons, you know, although Larry Bird was a good coach, but Magic Johnson wasn't a good coach either. It's, 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 it's much easier uh, uh, for them to, to see the game and, 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 and do things. And it's impossible for them to explain it because they were so talented. What about the aspect of firing uh, Bottrell? I thought Jason would be, I didn't, I didn't have a problem with them firing Jason. I think he got himself into a situation where he had one trade that he screwed up royally. And um, I just thought that Jason was going to do a better job. I liked Jason uh, as a candidate uh, long before he became a general manager. And uh, I thought that he would grow into the job and, and he didn't, but you know, let me say something about the, the, the differences in those organizations because they're, they're owned by the same people. And people would say, well, you know, how is it that the Sabres can be, you know, just this mess of a franchise, you know, the entire time the Pagulas have owned them? And, and why is it that the Bills are not? And I'm sure you guys have explained this, and I think I wrote it, but I've said it a million times. Like, people don't understand that in the NFL, they, they're not quite sure who to hire. There's a committee there, right? You rely on the committee. They ignored the committee, and they hired Rex Ryan. But they leaned on the committee, you know, with whoever's on it now. It used to be like Polian and Parcells and – other smart people in the NFL that would Ron Wolf, Ernie, right. Yeah. They, they've put together these lists and it'd be smart to probably go off one of these lists and then see if there's a fit. Well, you know, they hit on, they hit on McDermott and therefore they ended up hitting on Dean. And um, those guys have done a fantastic job. I give credit to, to Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean. That's it. Um, and you, you look at the Sabres and you say, well, how come they haven't done it there? Well, there is no committee and they haven't been quite sure, you know, how to fire, who to hire. Uh, I just, I just, you know, I just don't think that they're equipped to win there. Now, if they're going to win, you know, I'm going to wish Kevin Adams luck in this. I think it's a, it's a tall hill to climb. And I know that he's made some, some big moves and he's got some players in here that, that could play. And I'm sure that some of them still can play, but no, you know, I would have never signed Jeff Skinner to that money. I thought that was ludicrous. Um, you know, there have been some other moves. I, I just I just think that the Sabres are really far away. Bucky, before we let you go, can you um, 
tell the story. And I don't, I don't know if Jonah or Matthew know this story, but for the listeners slash viewers, if they're checking this out on YouTube, can you um, break down as a coach would? Maybe there's some young hockey players sure. uh, watching this right now. Can you, um, can you break down the bean pot D for everybody? I knew that you were going to ask me that. And you know what? You came to the right place because if I recall, and, and should we share why the bean pot D matters? Absolutely. The whole, okay. the whole story, whatever, you know, the whole story is fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, it all started in, in of course, in a rental car, as it often does. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it, there might have there might have been a couple beers involved in this, but Tin in Raleigh, had, North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, at the uh, what are you the double what was it, not the double tree or the what the hell was it, tree apple tree, is it apple tree something I don't know what it was. It was in that area of of Raleigh. There was a hotel uh, Marriott there. I forget the name of it. Something tree. It's a non Marriott because it's one of the places where we didn't get points. Oh, is that it? Okay. So, uh, so yeah, so there might've been a couple beers involved and you were supposed to go on a radio show, but I don't think that you were quite fit to, to be on the radio show. So that's they- not, that's not quite it, but I'll let you tell your version. The reason was, <laughs> all right, I, I will interject. The Sabres have gone to the Eastern conference finals and by this stage, and they were great all year by this stage, I am up to here in doing radio. Yes. Right. And so I'm at the stage, I think, in my career where I couldn't say no. And then, yes, it was because I had so many beers and I said, I got to do this radio show. Well, yes. So you forgot about the radio show that you had to do, which was and then they called and you didn't expect the call to be coming. And you're like, oh, no, I need to do this radio show. And you just looked at me and you handed me the phone. I and see. Were like, you were Tim, and you were Tim Graham for that. And they were like, "Tim," I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> They're like, "Yeah, we're out with Tim Graham of the Buffalo News," and so he starts. Tim has no idea what I'm doing. Or I think it was I'm the going. Fan 590. Was it the I Fan? Think. I don't even. I, I think thought, it was because I'm, Kevin I'm Snow, uh, at the time, a Sabres PR guy, heard the call. Oh, he did he? Knew, he knew your voice, and he knew that you weren't Tim Graham. All right, that's hilarious because I thought we were in Edmonton or something. Because, but that's how those shows work, right? I mean, you have all these different. You don't. You're calling from Winnipeg. You don't know who's who. Anyway, to this day, until just now, I thought that the call was from Edmonton. You know what? I actually need to add an extra wrinkle. We must have planned this at least a little bit, a, a few minutes ahead of time, because the challenge. Set, and John Vogel's in the car also. Yes, we were being driven. By the way, we were not driving. It's yes. drinking and driving. No, no, no. John Vogel was in the car. We made the, I said, you didn't, you, we didn't know what it was going to be, but the challenge was invent something. And our theory being that the Canadian media would not be able to admit that it doesn't know what you're talking about. That, that, that they will go along. That was my prediction was they'll go along with it because they won't be able to say that some American knows something about hockey that they don't. Right. And I think I said, okay, hang on. I mean, this is like really quick because it was, we were just having the conversation. Then the phone rang. Then you handed me the phone, which is a smart move, by the way, by you. And, um, and, and they were like, you know, Hey, Tim, how's it going? I'm like, Oh, it's great. You know, whatever. We're, we're a little tired, but we're okay. You know, sure enough. It's like these, all the questions are the same, you know, here we are, here I am like ripping the media as part of the media, but you knew what was coming. What has led to their success? And I was like, listen, I just think it was, 
look, nobody knows this, but I'm going to share it with you guys now that Lindy Ruff had installed the bean pot defense, right? And nobody, nobody has picked up the bean pot D. And it's, you know, I'm like, when the puck goes into the corner, you have one defenseman that chases, you have a, uh, I'm basically describing a basic defense. You make sure that the centerman gets low and then you have the opposite D go a little higher. I'm like, it's been run in college. It's the bean pot D look up BU or whatever the hell I said at the time. But why do you think they're not giving up many goals? You know, well, they were, but you know what I mean? I'm like, this is, this has been the secret. And these guys on the other end are like, you know what? I, I, I don't think that I knew that. Has that been out there? I'm like, it's out there. We, we, we've talked about it, but I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, so I kept they going ate on it up. about the, I probably the mentioned that I think the, the general, the general response was, Oh yeah, 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 that's right. You know, now that you mention it. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what their response was. I think <laughs> I seem to think that it was kind of like, gee, I'm not quite sure, but no, I know now that you say that Bucky, I think, yeah, right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like they were first, first certainly saying it makes perfect sense. I'm like, of course it does. Like, you know, you think you can't reinvent the wheel, but you can. That was the basic tone of it all. But I had to mention the bean pot D probably six, seven, eight times in the call. And Bogle and Graham were dying. Like nobody they called you on it. Nobody said nobody, we've never heard of this thing before. They, and they, they couldn't breathe because they couldn't laugh out loud because they would have screwed up the whole call. And they were just buckled under and it was they were like all right tim i'm like all right fellas you know have a great night it was the best call i ever made <laughs> the bean pot d and i will still and i can almost i i can almost sense when it's going to happen you know sabers will have a shutout or something i'll get a text from johnny vogel must be that bean pot d <laughs> <laughs> yep they reinstituted the bean pot d Thanks for doing oh, this, Bucky. Uh, it's great yeah, to chat with fun. you, man. Good to see your face. Yeah, it's good. If it weren't for this pandemic, too. that would have uh, we we'd all we'd we'd have had beers uh, for sure by now. But well, that's uh, the thing, you know. I've said, you know, what have you missed? Or you know, I haven't missed much. Uh, I have missed that. I have missed the camaraderie. And uh, you know, I, I used to like busting in the door, see Jerry Sullivan sitting in the in his chair there, insult him five times before I went anywhere else. You know. The, the the banter and the you know picking on different people and getting picked on by different people and all that stuff was a lot of fun. Uh, the other stuff I don't miss, but I do miss that. Well, it's great to see you, Buggy. Thanks for doing this. All right, gentlemen, be good, have fun, enjoy the ride. All right, take care, man. I want to remind you that Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK. That stands for Shampoo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Once more, 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Always uh, great to hear from Bucky Gleason. It's been too long. 
and uh, good to get his perspective on what's going on with the Bills, Sabres, the journalism business. Um, we wanted to uh, take a few minutes to let uh, Jonah Bronstein come at me. Uh, he uh, he did not appreciate my my column at the athletic and well, said Bill's mafia should be on the wall of fame. I think I laid out my case. I, I think you lay actually, I think you laid out an excellent case for why the issues with the 12th man name and how it's not very original. Bill's don't have Bill's fans don't have ownership of that in the way you would want. And I don't really have a problem myself with Bill's mafia being on the wall of fame. I just thought I was shocked to see that headline. I was shocked to see, those words drip off your fingertips. But I've been shocked this whole time in about the last year or so where all of a sudden Bill's Mafia has gone from this tongue-in-cheek Twitter hashtag that was started by online trolls and really was kind of a joke and then taken over by Barstool and all the things that were happening in the parking lots. And then all of a sudden now it's a capitalized two-word proper noun that we use in headlines and leads and like this is actually the thing and we don't even say bill's mafia anymore you know you can put on the five o'clock news and they'll say the mafia will be back at the stadium and you know it's a problematic word mafia i think for the buffalo bills and the nfl to be co-branding with this stuff and i'm not trying to be too pedantic about that but i think there's a lot of things that would make you say, mm, maybe we don't really want to put that in. What, what size font is that on the wall of fame? Well, I, I don't. I, 3,500 point font <laughs> on the wall of fame. What's that on your Bills shirt, Jonah? Organized Jonah, what, crime that? syndicate. All right. So that's part of this. I wore this shirt originally. I broke this shirt out of my closet. Mm -hmm. I haven't worn it since I bought it. It cost me like $80 for a t-shirt. This is a, well, you know, you recognize who's on the shirt. It's Scarface. Yeah. It's Scarface, Tony Montana and Sosa. But this is a Benny the Butcher, BSF, Black Soprano family, the Plugs I Met To merchandise T-shirt that went with the rap album that came out a few months ago, Buffalo rapper Benny the Butcher, who, oh, by the way, is also a, uh, you know, what would you call him, a endorser of Bill's Mafia merchandise with the T-shirts and the videos that they're filming and branding and it's it's an interesting i think parallel to calling yourself a mafia and then having these you know drug cartel cocaine dealing you know it, it is a form of entertainment but all these associations it's very strange to me that the bills are sending selling t-shirts of a guy throwing a pyrex jar like at the football do you, do you know what that pyrex i call it a jar but it's a a beaker? You know, with the pyrex? Yeah, beaker. What, what would you use that for, Tim? Uh, making crystal meth. Sure, or crack cocaine. And then, or, so now yeah, we're drugs. Slinging the pyrex on the football field in officially branded merchandise sold by the Buffalo Bills, and you're putting them on the Wall of Fame. Yes. Well, I, okay. So, yeah. So, the Bills are perhaps botching uh, this thing. Yeah, so my problem uh, isn't really... And I'm not doing. meaning to say botchy. I said botching. Yeah, where we're at with Bill's mom. Oh, no, it's Lenovo is, is the reference I want to make there, not botchy. Sure. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, but, yeah, so the Bills are perhaps ruining this. Like, they have a thing, and maybe they're going to take it a little too far. If they're going to insist yeah. on making it maybe about... Maybe it should be ruined. Maybe it isn't you know, something that we should gangland, all... Gang-style gang killings and, uh, you know, hits and uh, drugs and things. 
Okay. Well, that's a different, that's maybe, that's a conversation to have. And maybe a paragraph or two I should have put in there that the bill should maybe back off on, on the certain imagery. Well, so what do you think? Do you, do you cringe at all? Like I do when, you know, the newspaper or the, the news channels use Bill's mafia, you know, without the irony that, that the phrase started with just actually calling the fan base, the Bill's mafia. Originally I did. Um, but it's kind of, it's become a tongue in cheek type thing. Um, as long as it stays that way. But if the bills and you make a great point, Jonah, if they're going to insist on reinforcing the negative mafia stereotype by using puns and imagery and all that type of thing, then yeah, then I think it's foolish. I think it, that will be a, a, a major backfire in terms of branding. And, and but, I think using the hashtag in the way they do officially also encourages some of the parking lot behavior. I know that's a, you know, a died in the, you know, people digging their heels on Twitter arguing that this is Bill's Mafia. This is not Bill's Mafia. We do this. We don't do that. But it is wrapped together. And I think if the team's saying, selling shirts and putting the hashtag out there on their official Twitter, then it's up to the team okay. to mold what it wants Bill's Mafia to be, not this mishmash of different things of jumping through tables, of the charity aspect of it that Del Reed and, and, and Brayon Harris and Leslie Willie do and, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and now Benny the Butcher. Yeah, it's up to the Bills now. They've now accepted this. Go They've taken legit. ownership of this. They need to guide how they want this to be viewed, for sure. I missed what you said there, Jonah. What? Right, so it's, you know, we're going legitimate, legitimate business. Yeah. Cleaning the money. <laughs> yes. As long as they go legit, I think it's fine. Yeah, if they want to go, if they're just going to go all in with. I think they just want to sell the merchandise. Yeah. But if something is going to be on the wall of fame for the fans, it shouldn't be 12th man. And Bills and the Bills have obviously adopted the Bills Mafia as their thing, like Raider Nation, like what are some of the other teams? Uh, the 12s in Seattle. Seattle even dropped the 12th man after using it. The 12. What are some others? Now they're the Seahawks organized crime syndicate that aren't just uh, that aren't just some such and such nation. What are, what are some others? Like yeah, I don't know. They're all nation. Everybody uses the yeah. same one. The Bill's Mafia is that original. Other people have used that word with another. Uh, the dog pound. Right. Uh, Dogs. Well, that was more of a team thing. That was more yeah. of the offensive line. What do um, America's team? I don't know. That's also a team slogan, not a not a fan thing. The Cardinals uh, are the best fans in baseball. Maybe that's what Bills fans should lean into. They seem you to just be called Bills fans. Also, put that I on the wall. The Buffalo fan base that you know Del Reed and the other people involved with Bills Mafia tried to, you know, they tried to rebrand and get people to stop saying Bills Mafia. I think at one point a few years ago, didn't really catch on. But I thought that was a fine name, fan base. I don't know if that's used elsewhere. Yeah, that's true. Well, my, my justification is, uh, or rationale, I should say, is that the Bills have adopted this. They, it, the NFL has given it its blessing, and it is something that was organic among Bills fans. It came up naturally. It wasn't done through focus groups or a marketing lab. And um, 
12th man I thought is kind of silly. And it's been proven to be silly because the Bills, A, weren't the first. Uh, the people who came up with it then took it to Indianapolis and used it there. Uh, and then they have to rent it. I mean, imagine having to rent some, your own Wall of Fame member. They have to pay or they've paid Texas A&M for the contractual right to put it up on their stadium, which to me is just kind of, as I, the, the phrase I used or the word I used uh, in my uh, column was debasing. It's like, you can't even come up with your own thing. You got to pay somebody else to say, these are what we're going to call our fans. Whatever Texas A&M decided to trademark and the Seattle Seahawks already had. And really dozens of teams have called their fan base, the 12th man at the high school level, college pot, whatever it's, it's generic. And it's, so if you're going to call it something, call it whatever you're embracing, but you raise a good point. Yeah. Jonah. And, and with that, I, I, I thought you wrote an excellent column kind of breaking down why 12th man isn't specific to the bills in Buffalo, but it has been a name that was used and has been on the wall of fame a lot longer than bills. Mafia bills. Mafia is a rather newish statement. It, it the origins come from Adam Schefter being kind of pejorative to the Bills fans. And all of a sudden, then this is. Yeah, but just because it's are, up there, it was. Is, we're going to tattoo right. on so our bodies now. I, no, I, I agree. It's been up there as 12th man for a long time, but it has never been brought into the, the Bills tradition, you know, canon. You know, nobody refers to the Bills fans as 12th man. Um, it's did, not a thing. No, uh, people did, don't revere it. In the 90s, it wasn't unique but it was what you know the players and and the team would say at that time that's why it's up there but so did every team every yeah. team talked about its fans as the 12th man i think we should run a contest for a new name rename bills mafia something that doesn't offend the italian american community and associate with organized crime and i'll leave it kind of interesting the coke Mafia is even kind of interesting in the sense that um, it's not a dominant Italian town here. I mean, not that there aren't Italians who live here, but um, it Buffalo just Buffalo at one time was a big mafia city, though. Was it? Yes. Um, so, but Cleveland, that, that, Youngstown, Ohio, Buffalo, Buffalo Falls, border town. But yeah. it doesn't strike me as that's where the origins came from. Right. It sort but of just the became. Other thing a, too is there are not just Italian. Mafias, you know, that's true the too. Yakuza, well, they're the you know, mafias are Mexican uh, mafias. They're but yeah, they're they're bloodthirsty. Yeah, they're killers uh, and they'll and drug drug runners. And another thing, people will say, "Oh, Bill's mafia is okay because the word mafia means family," but it doesn't. It means you know, mafioso means like bravado and swagger, like you're a gangster. Not I did look it up, and fan. mafia, lowercase m and a mafia, does have a kind of a general term of a, an organization that is like people caught people, of, like how Bill's Mafia uses it. Yeah. As like a, an organ, a loose organization of, a, of a, a group of people who have like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Maybe this can change the, um, the branding of the word as a whole. Maybe, you know, this will be a good thing for. Yeah, but is that, is that what we're doing here? <laughs> it's a progressive. Yeah, we yeah, let's on. get this mafia. Let's let's re, let's remove yeah. the stigma from the world. Yeah. Make it OK to say mafia in any context we want. You raise great points, though, Jonah. And that's something that I should have included in my column. You, 
Yes, right. it's, that, it should that's be my con- point, that somebody contingent the on the takeout writer that Bucky Gleason has ever seen <laughs> should delve into this kind of bizarre. That wasn't a takeout piece; it was a column, and I'm I'm clearly flawed as a columnist. <laughs> but you're right; it's con- it should be contingent on how the Bills use the term and and um, cultivate the term. The Bills the Bills have done a good job of reducing a lot of that table jumping buffoonery. They've tried to distance themselves, the dildo tried, throwing. But I wonder if they really have because now it's, that's become mainstream. Andre Reid jumped out of a tree through a table to celebrate the Bills winning the division <laughs> on video, and everybody shared it like, that's cool. Well, they have draft prospects even that'll say, I can't wait to get up there and go through a table. Or draft prospects that at their Dawson Knox's party – one of his buddies went through a table. Like, you know, I, I hear it all the time. Every I'm going to, all right, I'm going to delete my column. <laughs> I'm, I'm now, I'm now upset at myself. I'm now getting aggravated at this, at the topic of. They you know, should put Bill's mafia yeah. on the wall of fame at Barstool Stadium in Orchard Butt Park, chugging New York. Shots, and then be, uh, you know, doing whatever you need to do for your Kiko Alonso jersey. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. a lot of issues in these. Well, the people have Hell issues, game. whether they're 12th man or Bill's Mafia. It's the a people cultural are, thing, are and I'm not touched. trying to shame these people for what they do because some of it I understand, and you know, there's alcohol and drugs involved, and that changes people's decision-making processes. But the Bills and the town, and to a lesser extent the media, I think have a responsibility to put it in perspective and not celebrate it in the way that because the Bills are AFC Championships a game, they're now in the NFL quarterfinals for the first time in – a generation that all of a sudden it's like, get the tables, everything's okay. You know, mafia's rule. Yeah, I just think it's kind of nutty. Yeah, Tim. Oh, it's all nutty. The whole, <laughs> the whole thing's nutty. Yeah. I, how, I get asked every single, it feels like every single radio hit or TV thing out of market that I do, it's, man, I bet no table's safe around you. Or, or, or there's no table's safe over there or whatever. And I'm like, my kitchen table is fine. I'm not throwing myself, you know, well, that's yes, there's plenty of tables are safe. No table is safe in Western New York. It's like, yes, there are, they are. Yeah. Especially their multiplication tables. Right. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Jonah? No, I just, your dad's a media, math teacher, right? Media and other time. No, I, he was a math teacher. Yes. Um, I, it fascinates me that people in other town, media fans, even players are like jealous of this. They're like, I wish we could have people jumping through flaming tables in Minnesota. That would be so cool. Did you see the Browns fans uh, waiting for their team to return uh, from Pittsburgh? Uh, they were all at the airport. No, but I'm not About 30 of them. I mean, how long has it been since they won a playoff game? Longer than the Bills, right? I think about the, about the same. It was actually, I think, know. either the same year or the year before. Nin- I think 96, they were 94, I think. Yeah. 94, maybe, 95. And over the Steelers, a game they were supposed to right. lose. They were about 30, and the, and the Browns retweeted it. They loved it. They thought it was great that they had 30 people at at uh, Hopkins Airport. Oh, so I didn't – okay, so they, they only had 30 <laughs> people. All right. Yeah. That's appropriate. There should only be 30 crazy There shouldn't be any. To do that. Yeah, right. uh, there's a few, but – when the there Bills do it, it's every In a pandemic, there shouldn't like be any. The mayor and the 5 the o'clock mayor. news anchor and everybody that you grew up with. It's, it's crazy. 
Yeah, and the and the reporters talking about how great it is. I'm in the middle oh, of this yeah. crowd. We're Zubas and jumping through the tables <laughs> look, off the fences and the tables themselves. Oh, look at how crazy these fans are. <laughs> yeah. Not even mentioning that right. it's a pandemic. Look, that guy's setting himself on fire. They love this team. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end it there, guys. Uh, thanks. Uh, we'll uh, Joel Staniszewski later in the week. Um, good times. My uh, for Matthew Fairburn for Jonah Bronstein. This has been Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK.